So we're saying Yaakov went on his way, but it says that every Jew who left the Holy Temple, their job was to go back to life. Go back to their vineyard, go back to their orchard, go back to their farm, go back to their house, their apartment, wherever they went to, and resume life. So what happened was, each person would go back and like delve into their little corner of the universe. The whole month of Tishrei, they're by God. And now it's your time to return back, to go back into creation, so to say. And what we read about in this work, this week's Parsha is the story of creation, Genesis. We hear about in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. A new world is created. One of the amazing things it says in the Torah is, the, how did God create the world? He looked into the Torah, and He created the world by gazing into the Torah. Similarly, when one gazes into a Torah, it perpetuates the world's existence. When a Jew sits and learns Torah, it actually perpetuates the world's existence. It keeps the world going. One of the interesting things is, why is why does a, a man before his wedding get an ufruf? No, ufruf is. Ufruf is when a man's called to the Torah, the Shabbos. It's called Chatan uh, Shabbat, or ufruf in Yiddish, is that we are called to the Torah before the day of their wedding. The Shabbat that blesses their wedding day, they get married on a Monday, that Shabbat before they get, they have a wedding, they have a aliyah to the Torah. Why? Because man's about to create a new world. When husband and wife come together, they're creating a new world. So a man should look into the words of the Torah on the Shabbos before his wedding in order that he emulates God. He's like God who gazes into the Torah. And so too, this Shabbos, which literally is the creation of the world, Genesis, Bereshis, when we gaze into the Torah, we give strength to ourselves for the forthcoming year. That's why this Shabbos is so essential to participate in as much spiritual things as possible and to come to Minyan and hear the Torah being read and study Torah ourselves. Now here we go. Everyone has this most controversial phrase about the Jewish people. What are we called? The chosen people. You've heard of us being called the chosen people before? Yeah, we're chosen people. Yeah, you heard of that? So what is it that we're chosen? So in the beginning, Bereshis expresses the purpose of creation. Just in the word Bereshis, which is translated loosely as Genesis, also gives us a clue to the purpose of creation. It says our sages tell us that the world was created for two primary reasons. What were the two primary reasons? Jewish people and the Torah. It says base reshis. So if you know Hebrew a little bit, Aleph is number one, base is number two, Bet. Bet is the letter two, the second letter. So it's number two. So it says there's two reshis. There's two heads. There's two reasons why the world was created. Torah, Jewish people. This is the reason why God created the Torah. It doesn't only mean that they were created for the purpose of. If they were created for the purpose of, seemingly, they were created even before creation. Meaning to say, you have a purpose for something in life. You don't find your purpose and then go do it. You have your purpose and then you work towards that goal. Now, anyone who's looking to find their purpose in life, it's going to take a while. It's good luck. And like, you know, you know, find God. God's not outside. He's inside. You know, find your purpose in life. Okay, find your purpose. And now that you have your purpose, then you begin to explore. Then you begin to find out how to do it. Then you begin to work on it. So the whole thing is, is that the Jewish people and the Torah were created before the world was created. They were actually extant 
as an as a as a a first thought, a first purpose, a first a rosendetra, if you would, for God to create the world, a reason for existence for the world. So the Jewish nation are not only the choicest part of creation, but seemingly they're like the first the first crop, the first seed planted into creation, and then everything else stemmed out of there. As it says, we say it so many times during the davening, the song, Atav I don't know if you guys know the song, but the Rebbe taught this song, and it's from the prayers of Musaf, I'm sorry, of, uh, of Shona Esrei, the Amidah, for the festival Amidah. So what does this prayer mean? It means that God shows us from amongst all the nations of the world and all the languages of the world and God shows not the soul of a Jew but the body of a Jew. The body of a Jew was created, chosen by God. And what's the amazing thing? that it's indistinguishable from that of a non-Jewish body. Non-Jews, two eyes, two nostrils, two ears, brain. Could be smarter. Could be more, more capable than a Jew. Have more faculties, more emotional proclivities, more creativity, more intellect, more reason. But yet the body of a Jew is chosen by God. Because true freedom of choice means when a person chooses something because there's no advantage of one thing over the other. I think I brought that out in other classes before. I mean to say, if there's a higher quality of one thing over another, you're not really making a choice. The object has made the choice for you. Like if you're choosing um, a 2022 Lexus over like a 1985 Nissan Sentra, like it's not a choice. Like you know it, there's a reason why. I had a, my first car was a 95 Sentra. 95 Sentra, two, four door Nissan Sentra, Great car, love that car, but you know what? Give me the 2023 Lexus, whatever there is, or whatever the good car. That's what you. That's there's no choice. There's no choice. The Lexus chose itself for me. It's not, it's not really a choice. It says okay, which one would you rather have? They have to be two things that are almost indistinguishable, or really indistinguishable. That there's no advantage at one to the other. If one of the two things is in a more advantageous, advantageous position. And there's no reason for like to make a choice. The thing, the object itself, compels you in that direction. A choice has to be untarnished by reason or advantage. It's a weird thing if you think about that, right? It's like, why do you choose what you choose in life? You choose what you choose in life. It's like really hard to explain. I mean, psychology tries to attribute it to like childhood decisions and set and setting that you've grown up in, and that's why you make certain choices but an essential choice a real choice there's no perceivable advantage or perceivable reason behind why you choose what you choose like i always make the joke and you guys know it's ice cream don't i i vanilla and chocolates like i always will choose chocolate why do i choose chocolate i don't know they're seemingly two equal things does chocolate actually have anything better than vanilla I, not that i know of Maybe like there's, a, I don't know, cocos. My taste is different, but why? There's no reason why. I don't have any, uh, I don't have any, uh, there's no like, it's just what it is. My choice is chocolate every time. I don't have to even think about it. But it's not because chocolate's better. There's people who eat vanilla who are way better than me. Like, I mean, it's like, doesn't make any, like, there's no real reason. So when God says, I chose the Jewish people, he's not saying because you're smarter. 
We're not saying like because you won so many Nobel prizes, or because you're like so good at education and math and finance and and spirituality. Even he's not saying your soul. He's saying your body. It's a wild thing. Like it's very hard for me to wrap my mind around. To be honest with you, to say that like that's the reason he chose my body, like my body and the non-Jewish body. There's guys who are way better conditioned physically than I am, and like God chose me. God chose my existence physically. For a physical reason. That means there's no real reason. It's like the same physical as the other physical. So we're speaking of God's choice of the Jewish people. It doesn't refer to the soul. It doesn't refer... Because the soul is easy. The soul is easy. There's no counterpart for the Jewish soul. The Jewish soul is an, an indomitable spirit that like, has survived holocausts, has survived pogroms, has survived uh, inquisitions, excommunications, all kinds of things. But the Jewish soul keeps going. But the body that God chose the Jewish people to serve him. Even though the Jewish people served idols as the Egyptians did, and God's choice remained unchanged beyond any reason. Now let's parallel that. It's an interesting concept. It says, Torah lo b'shamayim he. The Torah does not belong in heaven. The Torah's job is to be down here. Torah is the ultimate connector between infinite and finite. It says when God gave the Torah, heaven and earth kissed. Heaven came down to earth, earth elevated to heaven. And so when we say this, what are we saying? We're saying God speaking our language. God speaking your language. The Torah is in the language of man. The Torah is enclosed itself in physical garb. It's written on a actual parchment with actual ink and actual words that we can understand and discuss and utilize and use our physical mind and heart to make godly decisions in life. It's a wild concept. Like the one thing, like the one, like people say, well, how do we know? Torah tells us. We have no other proof than the Torah. Torah is the best proof for everything. Because you know what? An infinite creator shouldn't, quote unquote, be able to communicate with a physical man. Human beings are flawed. We are limited in our intellects, we're limited in our hearts, we're limited in our capacity for to endure pain and challenges. We're limited in our capacity for being inventors, progressive, changing, morphing. We're limited, we're very limited. And God's infinite. So how do we reconcile the fact that we have an infinite God and a finite human being? God says, I gave you a Torah. I gave you a physical Torah and I give you a merchandise that is greater value than all the merchandise in the world. More than gold and pearls. Because why? The Torah remains in its pure state. That unlike the coarseness of the human body, the Torah remains pristine. It's untouchable. But yet, it's for us. Very, very touchable people. Very human. Very limited. Very frail people. And so, God says... I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you, you you coarse people who have mistakes, good days and bad days, who have issues and baggage and history and bad experiences and good experiences. says the Torah is for you. Yet here's one amazing caveat. What do you think came first? The body of a Jew or the Torah? Torah. Torah, right? That's all. I remember once I was reading the Torah is the blueprint of the creation. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That is, that's what I would think too. I think exactly like you both said, the Torah. 
But the answer is the body of a Jew came first. The coarseness of the human existence that is the physical body mm. came before the Torah. Yeah. Really is. The souls of the Jewish people came before the Torah. But yet, cause why? What does it show us? That Torah observance is not a condition for God's choice for a Jew. Meaning to say, if the Torah came first, God would be, sort of say, bound by that blueprint, like you said, Lou, mm -hmm. for how to deal with a Jew. And the minute a Jew, God forbid, went away from their religion, or did against something against God, there would no longer be choice. But because God chose the Jew before the Torah was given, the ultimate primordial thought, the ultimate supernal creation, is the Jew. And God says that bond transcends even the Torah. Transcends every other choice I'm going to make. Can, transcends every subatomic particle in my creation, every giant galaxy. Is the Jew himself or herself. That that existence supersedes everything. So it says, like, how could a Jew, Jew doesn't keep Shabbos, God forbid. Jew doesn't keep kosher, God forbid. Jew doesn't put tefillin, God forbid. Jew doesn't like Shabbat candles. Jew doesn't wear a yarmulke. But yet, still Jewish. 100% Jewish. Still godly soul in body that God chose. And still godly. Still Jewish. And any time he or she decides, I'm picking it up, it's right there for them. It's amazing. It's like, that's like true unconditional love. True unconditional love. Like a parent to a child. A child could get uh, a C on their report card and um, beat up their friend on the school bus and tease the other kid and be a bad and not listen and uh, take the car keys out and crash the car and do all kinds of stuff. God forbid. And what? The minute you want to come back, you're still my kid. No matter what. I love you. It's all back. It's all back. I love you no matter what. Unconditional. That's what God says to a Jew. So powerful. So no matter what conditions I placed on you, no matter what rules there might be, no matter universe I have created with all kinds of laws of nature, a Jew transcends all of it. It's a very beautiful thought. Rashi refers to the Jewish people, Rashi the foremost commentator on the Torah, as not only as firsts in some higher realm, but actually in this world, thereby completing the creation. So at the same time they predated, sort of say, creation, they also came at the, come at the end. The Torah, like Lou said, is the blueprint for all creation. What is good as a blueprint that just remains on paper? That's not worth anything. Maybe someone would buy it to build a different house. But if you make a blueprint for a house and you don't execute the house, the blueprint's only worth the time the a guy architect put into it. And that's it. But when that blueprint is exacted and you take that template and you actually make the house, and you actually build it, oh my goodness, I can see this like microcosm on this paper that became that beautiful house that I've created over there with electric and running water and, and the infrastructure and mortar and foundation and beautiful decorations and beautiful roof, everything beautiful. Then I know that blueprint has been executed to its fullest capacity. Then that blueprint, I see the value intrinsically in the blueprint because it's been taken outside the specter of just a potential and become actual. So this is what the Torah's amazing capacity is. And who's the architect? God. God. And who is the plumber and the, and the electrician? Us. Us. We're the, we're the, we're the, we're the workers.
We're the ones that need to make the dwelling place in this world for God. We need to make the house. We need to make the house. We complete the purpose of creation. At the end of Bereshis, the Parsha, this week's Parsha, we talk about Noah for the first time. Noah was Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, were obviously the progenitors of all humankind, until the flood. Once the flood wiped out humanity, Noah, his wife, and their three sons and their wives became the progenitors of the human race. Why? One of the things it says at the end of this week's Parsha, we first hear about Noah. Next week's Parsha is Noah. All Noah, almost. But this week we hear about him for the first time at the end of the Parsha. What do we hear? Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah found favor in the eyes of Hashem. I know your Hebrew name is not Noah, but you also find favor, Noah, in, in the eyes of God. What does it mean, chosen and favor? It's also super rational. It's not rational. It doesn't make sense. Why do I favor chocolate over vanilla? It doesn't make sense. There's no reason behind it. And the connotation here is that Noah just found favor. Beyond human logic. Beyond anything. And then Noah was remembered, sort of say, by God and rescued from the flood. And the flood engulfed the world. But that flood caused peace in the higher realms and in this world. Eventually the reconciliation of the generation of the flood was all through Noah and his children and his boys and his wife and then their wives. That generation knows the, the, the covenant of Noah, the seven Noahide laws is what is like holding the fabric of like civilization together to this day. So the fact is, is that that favor sort of say that Noah found transcended the turmoil of the flood transcended the generation of horrible people who were destroyed by the flood, and then eventually brought peace to the world in the higher realms and the lower worlds after the flood. So it's a beautiful, beautiful concept. And have any questions on this? We're good? So now we're going to go into prophecy about our times. We're talking about Genesis 5,783 years ago, in this week's Parsha. Now, let's talk about prophecy in our times, about Israel. Believe it or not, Israel is so paramount in this week's Parsha that the first Rashi, the first commentators on this Parsha talk about Israel. Here's what it goes. Here it goes like this. It says that there will come a day when the nations of the world will accuse the Jewish people of being thieves. What are they, th- what are they thieves of? What do they steal? According to the non-Jews? The not the Torah. It's a good guess. Israel. Or Egypt. Israel. Oh, it belongs to Arabs. It's like, like I don't need, like this is like in the Torah 5,783 years ago. Now I can just turn on CNN and find out that, you know, and New York Times will say very clearly, you're thieves. You're robbers. Doesn't belong to you. Go on any college campus right now and they'll tell you with signs in front of your dorm room saying, you're a thief. You're creating apartheid. God forbid, which is beyond silly. So the point is, this is prophecy about our times, very clearly laid out. So, it's a fascinating thing that we've had to live with. Like, there are times when, like, you've had non-Jews, like, say, you know, like, that's Israel. Like, that's biblical Israel. It belongs to the Jews. But they've claimed other things. We're the new Jews. The Jews fell. We take it over. Here you have Arabs coming saying, you stole it. What? What? 
what, where would you get that? Like, for what reason? No, no reason. You're just, you're just a thief. Wait a second. You're the thief. Like, very clear. So let's, let's explain it. Rashi, in his commentary on this week's Parsha, in the beginning, he says the Torah should not have begun with the story of creation, but with the first commandment of the Torah, telling us that the month of Nisan will be for you, the Jewish people, the head of the months of the year. Why does the story of the, why does the Torah then begin with the story of creation? Meaning to say like this: if the Torah is a book of what do you say, a blueprint of creation, yeah. why not tell me about the layout of the house first? Why go back to like an environmental study of the whole entire like flora and fauna and animal habitation that existed in Jericho two thousand years ago? Why well, five thousand years ago? I don't need to know that. I need to know what the codes of the town of Oyster Bay say right now. And tell me what it means. Tell me how to get there. Tell me what the codes are. And I'll build a house. I don't need to know about like the, the prehistoric animals that like ranged in this area 5,783 years ago. I just need to know 2022. What does the town of Oyster Bay say? How uh, far back can my fence be? Whatever it is. Right? So Rashi asked this question. He says... Why didn't the Torah begin with the first law? Begin with Jewish people leaving Egypt, creation of a Jewish calendar and holidays, the leaving of Exodus, and the going back to Israel. That was given to Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rivka, Rachel, Leah, and Yaakov. Begin there. Pick up with the narrative where it begins. Give me the laws. Tell me what it's about. You have to go back. In the beginning, God created this, and he created like insects that crawl on the ground. I see the insects crawling on the ground. I don't need the Torah to tell me that. Why does it begin with creation? It's a fascinating question. Usually you think, okay, let's begin at the beginning of the story. But I have to begin with like primordial ooze that came out of a, you know, like what? Like that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense, especially from God's perspective. God is precise. God is not superfluous. God's not floral and poetic in his language to create like a nice, beautiful picture. We've gotten used to it because we're used to the story of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve and dark and light and the six days of creation, the seventh day he rested. We got used to it. But really, essentially, when you boil it down, it doesn't make any sense to begin with creation. But now, why does the Torah begin that way? Do you got the question? To inform his people of his mighty acts that he gave them an inheritance amongst the nations called the land of Israel. And a day will come when the nations of the world will accuse the Jewish people of being thieves. You conquered the land of the seven Canaanite nations. And Rashi continues the imperative with the Jewish people must respond as us. The entire world is owned by God. It was he who created it and it was his to give to whoever he saw fit. It was his, by his divine will that he gave it to the Canaanite nations. And subsequently, by his divine will, he took it from them and gave the land of Israel to us. Nowadays, we have so many people who, you know, Baruch Hashem, the Jewish people brought the Bible to the world, so to say. Everyone agrees. So Rashi does not speak about the loftiness of the Jewish people in some higher realm in which they're spiritually more advanced people. But rather, what does he do? He comes to say, the first commandment would have been more appropriate, but the Jewish people are part of the world amongst nations. 
accused of stealing land from others. And therefore Rashi says that Hashem gave the land of Israel the choicest of all lands, the most precious of all lands, to the choicest of all nations. I mean, say, I chose you first. I gave you a Torah. And now I'm going to give you a land. We are one people, with one Torah, with one land. And of course, with one God. We are one. So what the oneness reflects oneness across all things. We're one people, with one Torah, with one land, with one Israel, with one Hashem that gave it to us. So God says in the beginning, I'm starting off the whole book to show you, I created all this. I can do with it what I want. And you are my people, and here is your land. That's why it's so important for us to reinforce this. Because it's very easy for even Jews to forget that. If you don't, if you don't uh, forget that when the modern state of Israel was being uh, established, many of the leaders wanted Uganda to be the new Jewish homeland. Really? They said that Israel, ugh, it's a desert. There's no water. There's Arabs there. The killers. It's a horrible place. Well, we want to live in Israel. Well, we want to go there. And they weren't sure the world would sort of say, give it to them back. And Herzl, the one who's considered the founder of the modern state of Israel, was willing to take Uganda. But a few Jews stood up and said, they're not taking Uganda. Like, sorry. You want Israel's our place. This is where we, the, the soul of a Jew somehow came out of the muck and mire of the original um, founders of the modern state of Israel. But to understand, even a Jew could make this mistake. Say, ah! Oh, We'll trade Israel for uh, the Lower East Side. We'll trade Israel for Uganda. We could trade Israel for uh, Miami Beach. <laughs> you know why? Miami Beach is nicer. Why not take Miami Beach? Lower taxes. <laughs> Let's go there. So this is a warning to not only the non-Jews to say, don't call us a thievery. We can't supplant ourselves. We can't switch ourselves. We can't say, you know what? You take this, we'll take that. It's not up to us. You know, one of the interesting laws in the Code of Jewish Law, in uh, Section 329, Law 6, I believe, it says that if a Jew is living in Israel and he thinks, thinks that the non-Jews are coming to attack him, on Shabbos, he's allowed to get guns together, get oh. ammunitions together, get bows, arrows, whatever he needs to fight, on Shabbos, and go out. Even if he thinks they're going to attack. Not that they attacked already. He thinks. He suspects. That's how precious the land of Israel is to a Jew. And says that if one Jew wants to sell one inch of Israel, they're not allowed to. I can sell this one inch for a million dollars. And I can give the money to Sadaka and I can help so many people. No, no, no. You have to have the consent of every other Jew to give even an inch, God forbid. And even then it's questionable if you have the consent of 16 million or whatever the number is of Jews. Can you give it? <laughs> Can you sell it? The answer is probably no. God gave it to you. You can't get rid of it. It's yours. Yeah, but they're always trying to take it away. Uh, yeah. They don't stop. They don't stop. So here's the prophecy. So here you have it. It says in the first line of the Torah, the first commentary on the first line of the Torah. Why does God start the Torah with creation? 
for God to say, I own this. I started this. I created this. I formed it. I made it. And I can do with it whatever I want. And here it is. So Hashem gave the entire land of Israel as an eternal inheritance to us. What about Jerusalem? For sure Jerusalem. For sure Jerusalem. Is Jerusalem is the capital. But isn't there a part of Jerusalem that's Christian or something? Right. So that's that's also a problem. So there, so Jerusalem as a... Mo- right, yeah. It is, 100%. So as Jerusalem, as the modern city that it is... Yeah. The, Isra- the Jews in Israel partitioned it, unfortunately. I mean, it still is under officially Jewish um, domain, but they made a Christian quarter and a Muslim Arab quarter and yeah. a Jewish quarter. Isn't like the Dome of the Rock, like, is that where the division begin? Like the right, right. So that's a bi- that's one of the bigger problems, or, right? Because. I know there's a Muslim side, a Christian side, and the Jewish side. Right. Like, does it start there? Right. So officially, that area falls within. So officially, like the <laughs> modern uh, only a Jew could think of it this way. <laughs> only a modern secular Israeli politician, like literally politician, it's like political, could think of it this way that they like let, they let, like they made a whole compromise with like I think it was Jordan, no Lebanon, Jordan, Jordan. That like it's under them, but Israel takes control. Like we run the security, but they own it, and only Arabs can pray there. No Jews are allowed to pray pray there, and it's like a whole partition. So you're right. So the Western Wall, Jews are allowed to pray at, but the area of the Mount itself, Jews are not allowed. To, they weren't allowed to go there, not allowed to pray there, not allowed to be there, and it's under Arab jurisdiction. But Jews handle the security. I mean, only a secular politician can think of such a thing, like terms like this. But there's the famous story of uh, the Israeli general. He writes in his own biography, I believe, that he, you know, the Jews had control over it briefly. For a brief while, the Jews did have control, totality of it. And he said he could have filled the whole dome with dynamite and blown it to bits, and then Jews would have sovereignty over it completely. I should have done that. As tough as a cookie as yeah, he was Israel, as an Israeli general, Israel has, yeah. has only one little country. Everybody has their country. Right. Also, they were kicked yeah, out of every Israel. other country. They were country. kicked out from every other country. Where, where else are they going to go? And now they're getting, mm. they were they're getting kicked out of Israel, you know, and this is horrible. Right. They can't be they're in not their allowed own to land have their own little or... little tiny country that they made so beautiful, mm. Israel. Mm. Mm. I don't see the Arab countries looking so beautiful. <laughs> right. They look like sand. Right. Look what what look what Israel. Unbelievable, right? I think I gave the metaphor for it maybe a couple of weeks ago by Russia before Shana that Israel is like a lover in waiting. <coughs> like it's almost like a, like a, a lover, like a woman whose husband goes to fight off in a, in a war. And she despairs if he'll ever come back, but she's always waiting. She's always waiting and she has her... She has beautiful perfume and, and yeah. outfits and flowers ready always hoping that her husband will come back. And then when he comes back, when she when he's away, sorry, when he's away, she's like a desert. She has room for no one else. She doesn't open herself for anybody else. She doesn't open the door for anybody else. She doesn't put on the beautiful dress that's waiting for him and everything else. She doesn't, she doesn't do that for anybody else. She's a desert. But when the husband comes back, 
Oh, she puts on the dress. She puts on her makeup. She gets ready. She's like, her heart opens up. She sings to Hashem. She's thankful her husband's returned. This is Israel for the Jew. So the Jew is the husband. Israel is the wife. And God says, only, only, only save yourself for your husband. Be there for your husband. Show him the love. Show him the attention, the affection, only when he comes home. So you see what happens in Israel. It's like, why is it that there is Baruch Hashem, the technology, the agriculture, the Torah, the yeshivas, mm. the spirituality, the vacations even, the, the beauty of the natural land is actually coming to flourish. So when the Jew returns home. And the secular Israeli politicians aren't really, they don't aware of it enough. They need to know it also. You're right. He should have blown it up, right? Oh, yeah, he should have. <laughs> right. He should have. He's a tough cookie and everything else. But he got, when it came down to brass tacks, the final moment, he, uh, he uh, as they say in the horse, he spit the bit. He, he, he gave up. But isn't the Doma, isn't it like, or, or my mistake, isn't mm. there like multiple like sections? Like the, It's like yeah, one no. building, but there's a... A church, like a mosque, yeah, yeah. a church. Right, so, right, so the Jewish part is the Western Wall. So, like, if you look at the way the Dome of the Rock is set up, or, you know, the Temple Mount, as it should be really called, the Temple yeah. Mount, the Dome of the Rock is just that little dome on the top. But the, the Temple Mount is a mountain. So the Western Wall of that side is the Jewish quarter where the Jews pray, the wall. And then you have the Dome over here. Mm-hmm. So this is the only Muslims can go up there and the Jews pray facing this way. And the Arabs behind, they're throwing rocks at them. Uh, it's also it's a problem, right? All the time. So that's, that, that's, that's what it is. So it's like, it is subdivided. You're right, 100%. No. And you can see and from up there, stop. yeah. You can see the, the churches over this way and the mosque over that way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's real. It's a real thing. I mean, you see, it's like the cradle of everything in the world. Like everyone is real. You know, it's not like... You know, it's like, oh, what are we fighting over peace in the desert in the Middle East for? It's like, it's a real thing. It's like God gave this to the Jewish people. And everyone says, we have the proof of it. We don't need to know, uh, I don't need to watch uh, politics to know what's going on there. I could just look into the Torah this week and I see they're trying to take it from us back then. They're trying to take it from us now. It's real. I mean, the, the Torah is 5,783 years old. I mean, the Torah is eternal. It's been there since before that. The Torah was given to us 3,000 years ago. The commentary that talks about this was 2,000 years ago. And Rashi, who writes this commentary, Rashi, who writes this commentary, is only 900 years ago. So it's like, it's an eternal thing. Meaning, say, the Torah itself was, was, was written before creation, but the Torah itself was given 3,300 years ago. The commentary from the Talmud on this about the land, why does it start this way? It was 2,000 years ago. And Rashi, in France, in 1100, wrote this down. In 1100, he wrote it down. So here you have something that's been around for over 3,000 years. And it's no, the story is the same story. And now we see it. It's our times. It's what's going on now. So it's an amazing thing. So there's an amazing concept of this too. Is that not only is Israel like an eternal inheritance as a land for us, but it says that the lands of the seven Canaanite nations are all given to us. And there's also three more nations that will eventually be given to us. The Canaanites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites were east of the Jordan River. The Jordan River flows like this. And then you have the three lands of the, I call them the KKK, that's how you remember them. <laughs> the Kuf, 
Kuf Kuf, the KKK, the Canaanites, the Kenizites, and the Kamonites. Let's remember, the KKK will also be given to Jewish people too. Not Alabama or Mississippi, but the actual land east of the Jordan River that also will return to us when Mashiach comes. The whole biblical Israel. If you ever see a map, you see a map now of Israel. It looks like this, like little sliver in the desert, like you said. It's like, like, why do we have this little, like, like little nestled sliver? But if you look at the way real Israel, biblical Israel is, it looks almost like the shape of. What state is that? It looks like flat on the bottom and like round on the top. No, that's round on the bottom, flat on the top. It's like flipped over Florida. Almost. It's like, is it Alabama? No, not Alabama. It's almost like Alabama or like or one of the southern states. It's like Kentucky a little bit. Like Kentucky. It's like flat and then the top is like big. So it's like it goes across like this, the Middle East, and then goes up like very big. The biblical Israel. I can show you a map of it. I have a map actually. I'll show you a map. So biblical Israel is not the sliver you see on the map today. Biblical Israel, you see, see, um, let's see the best one. Okay, so you see here, this is like what you see on a map now. It's like this, this little sliver over here. Not even that far, like to there, like this, this sliver over here, right? The real biblical Israel is like this. That's like real biblical like Israel. Like a, like a triangle, almost like a triangle. There's not a map of the... These are earlier maps from the patriarchs. This map went on here. Just to, to maybe I should visualize it for you. I have one more book. I'll show you. No, they don't give you the actual one. Give one more chance. This is a very cool book. It should have it. But to understand it is that it's not just a land of seven nations, and for sure it's not just a modern land we have now, but it's actually like biblical. Israel is a huge area. It's a big area. It's not just uh, your Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> okay. So here is what you have. Basically, the British mandate was here. For whatever reason, Jews gave up this. God forbid, which is Jerusalem. You asked about right here. Jerusalem right here. This is biblical Israel during King David's time. Okay, over here. Right? That's the whole thing. It goes very far up. Yeah? Right. It goes very far up. See, look. This is where this is. This is that. Egypt. Big piece of, of Egypt. Of what? Egypt. Not really Egypt. But like over here. The, the What do you call it? The Sinai. And then you have it go very far up over here. This is like King David's Israel. Okay? This is like full biblical Israel before the seven nations were conquered. Then you have over here 
do you have this river here? Uh, this river here, sorry. This is the Jordan River. And then all this area, look at this. See the Jordan? There's the Jordan. This whole area over here, that's also biblical Israel as well. And Israel in 1967 captured the entire Sinai. And they gave it back. Right. It's like, what? what? What are you talking about here? And then, and they almost got uh, the capital of Syria too. Yeah, look, look, so you're right there. You're right there. All Syria, see? yeah. They could have gotten Syria. They could have gotten all. They could have gotten like uh, Egypt too. They could have gone to Alexandria. They could have gone everywhere if they wanted. So you see, you see, like the yeah, the concept. The wow. Yeah. You see, right? See the Golan in Syria right there. You're right. So yeah. So understand it. I wish I had a better map of the entire Mashiach Israel. A fine one for you. Israel, and it, it shows like an animated, like a map. So that when the Arabs, you know, pushed in from Egypt, and yeah, and oh, here we go. Went like this, and they keep pushing them pushing yeah. here and here. Yeah, and they could have gotten all like they were close to the cat to Damascus. They could have gotten all of Syria. Oh. and they. Okay, here, here, here's future Israel for you. That's the triangle I said, flat on the bottom, from river to river. And then up through all like Syria, Iraq. See it? See how big that is? This is Israel now, right there, that little, little sliver right here. And that's what it's, that'll be like. That's Israel now. That's Israel when Mashiach comes. Oh, what? That, Look how big that is. Israel now? The Israel's the green. Hmm. Israel's the green line. You see the green line? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Israel's that green. And you can scroll like this. You see how big it is in the Middle East. Hmm. It's almost the size of modern day Iran. Yeah, here's, a, here's another map of it, the red. You see the red? Oh, yeah. So that is Mashiach, Israel. Well, that includes the lands east of the Jordan River and the entirety of the original biblical Israel as well, which includes the Sinai for sure and even into almost Egypt. But that's, one, that's what it is. I mean, that's there. Here's a shaded Here's a shaded version of it right there. And so the, the, the red is biblical Israel. That's what it was on King David. This is Mashiach Israel. So meaning to say, when Mashiach comes, we're going to have all set, all ten lands, not seven lands, but ten lands that are given to the Jewish people. So one of the amazing things it says is like this. From Bereshis to Noah, part, next week's Bereshis, to Noah and Lech Lecha, God says to Abraham, go from your land, the birthplace of your father's house, the land which I will show you, he gave Abraham the land of Israel as an eternal inheritance, inheritance for the entire Jewish people. Every Jew can take this spiritual journey and it affects the physical journey as well. God promises you that in your inner self, your land will also be shown and given to you. And here's where you have a complete transformation. The nations of the world will eventually come to stand by the Jewish people regarding Israel. The nations of the world will come to flip and eventually say, oh, yeah, belongs to Israel, belongs to the Jews. So in exile, we have this mitzvah called the law of the land is the law. As long as the laws of our country do not conflict with Torah, we have to follow the laws of the land. We have to follow the Constitution. The Constitution is not a godly document, but it's written with great moral intention and does not come in conflict 
the Jewish law, for the most part, 90% at least, is a very well, earnest, kind government construct. And we have to follow it because we live in America. That's the law of Torah. So the laws of the Constitution become the law of Torah. So like when I see a stop sign, I have to stop at the stop sign. When I get my taxes, I have to pay my taxes. When I get my, um, when I get, uh, my benefits, I get my benefits. <laughs> we live in America. That's what it is. So the law of the land is the law of the land. I have to follow the laws of the land. If it comes in conflict with Torah, I do not have to follow the laws of the land. But it's not because the Jewish people, God forbid, fear the nations, but because we're commanded to not oppress or challenge people with war and be a violent people. God orchestrates a world order. And as long as that world order is in a just way, we follow that way. So yeah, non-Jews should have court systems of law. It's in the seven Noahide laws. Just as he gave land masses to the other world nations, he gave the United States to the United States, and he gave Russia to Russia, maybe part of the Ukraine, Crimea, who knows what. But he gave it to them. We have to adhere to that while we're there. They also have to adhere to Israel. They have to adhere to Israel. We have to adhere to them. We have to adhere to us. Because why? Because the same God that created America is the same God that created Israel. But it's his, again, to do with what he wants. So isn't that a beautiful thing? Like, who else respects people such as a degree as a Jew? Who else is respected as much as a Jew who really believes in God and Israel and Torah? Nobody else. It's an amazing thing. Uh, be American. Be as American as you want. Be as Russian as you want. Be as African as you want. Be as whatever you want to be. Be that. Be as British. Do your th- you do you. You do you. And if I'm in your land, don't do as the Romans do. Because <laughs> they felt people were lions and that's not that's against the Torah. But if you do it as a moral people that does not conflict with Torah law, as a Jew, I am obligated to follow the laws of your land. It's an amazing thing. It's a famous story. My kid told me this story. I don't know why he told me this story recently, but it's one of my favorites. Very quick story. There was a rabbi. His name is Yisrael Rosen. He was one of the great, he was the greatest, I'll say, Talmudist of about a thousand years ago. His name was the Rugachavar Gaon. I have books about him and very complex, very hard studies to make on him. But there's a story of him. And the Rugachavar lived in the town of Rugachov. He was a Chabad guy, but he was not officially, he was not a Rebbe. He was a great Talmudist. He got a tax bill from the czar one time. And so he writes a check or whatever that means. He writes a, a receipt to pay this much tax. And his assistant says, Rabbi, you didn't pay the whole thing. Pay the whole thing. The czar's tax. Are you kidding me? He'll put you in chains and kill you. Siberia, whatever. He says, according to the Torah, I don't have to pay these taxes. But these taxes I do have to pay. And he says, Rabbi, it's bizarre. Just pay the taxes. He says, no, no. Sends off the bill, sends off the check, whatever it was. Pays the tax. About almost a year goes by. He gets the things. Sorry, these other taxes are null and void. You did not have to pay them from the outside. Oh. From the czar. <laughs> like, who, the, czar, the czar sends you a tax refund. <laughs> it's like, it's like you know, you're, you're holding somewhere very high level. But why? Because he saw, he was very, I mean, he was on a much higher level than most of us. He could parse through and see the laws and how they intersected or conflicted or were in harmony with Torah law. And he could actually see that in his life. 
so he can make decisions based on that. Most of us are kind of like, okay, I got a bill from the government as long as it's like the numbers are like jibe with everything else, I'll pay, you know? But this is what he did. It was a czar, you know? It wasn't just like uh, the IRS, which could be bad in itself, but it was the czar. So it shows us something amazing that we respect their laws and they have to understand that we have to make known to them that Israel belongs to us. God gave Israel to us. The laws that we are obligated to observe have their limitations. Most of them are financial and taxational, and as our souls are not subjected to the nations, but our bodies are subjected to the nations. But we are beyond servitude to the nations. I mean to say, if they outlaw uh, circumcision, or they outlaw Jewish uh, institutions, or out Jewish education, or they say no more Shabbat candles, we do not listen. Our souls are not subservient to that. But yeah, we had to pay the taxes, we had to pay the financial, we had to f follow the, the laws of the land. So we received, we, regarding the support we received from the nations, we pay, we pray for peace for the government. We want peace for non-Jews. We are like, respectful and loving and benevolent, saying we want you to be at peace. We want harmony, we want balance. It's not because we're dependent on their kindness, because rather the kindness is received from Hashem. God gave them this kindness to give them this land. God gave him this kindness to give him this government. So this that we have, Shabbos Bereshis, it reminds us that our job is to be the chosen one of Hashem's people. We choose and we recognize God's sovereignty in every area of our lives. And the way we stand this Shabbos, this is my guilt trip for now to come to Minyan, is that way we stand this Shabbos affects our entire year and affects the entire world. It has a very, very profound effect on the entirety of creation. So we'll continue next week, Governor. With uh, 50 miracles next week, I will. 50 miracles. Good Shabbos, everyone. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos.